Undoubtedly, one of the most famous and most beloved of all Jesus's stories is the one that he tells in Luke chapter 15 about a father and his two sons. And it's not just known and beloved among theologians or people in church. It's a story that's captured the hearts and minds of generations of artists and writers as well. To quote the English literary scholar David Lyle Jeffrey, to say that this is one of the best known of all parables would be an understatement. Almost every major English and American fiction writer and dramatist makes reference to it. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, in reference to the younger son in the story who takes his inheritance and spends it prodigally and wastefully in a foreign land. Others have called it the story of the lost son, which is maybe a little more fitting since this story is actually the third in a series of three stories Jesus tells about things that are lost and then found. Still, others have suggested that maybe the story shouldn't be named after the son at all. After all, the character who seems to receive the most amount of attention in this story and who makes an appearance in all its scenes isn't the younger son, but the father. So some people have taken to calling this story the parable of the waiting father or the parable of the father's love. I think that each of these titles help capture one or another aspect of this story, but instead of using any of them, I've come up with my own name. I'm calling this story Two Lost Sons and a Father's Costly Love. Because I think that Jesus is teaching us something important in this story, not only about a kind father and not just about a wayward son, but about a father's overwhelming love and how two sons who are each lost in their own way respond to that love. So in this video, I'll discuss each of these characters in the order that they appear and feature in the story, beginning with the first of those two lost sons, the younger brother. There's something deeply disturbing about this younger son. The story begins with him going to his father and saying, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. It's hard to overstate just how offensive this son is being with his words. Inheritance laws did, of course, guarantee that he would be owed something at the time of his father's death. It would have been a smaller portion of inheritance than his older brother but a sizable portion of his father's estate, nevertheless. But of course, the father is not dead. And by asking him to go ahead and divide the inheritance, this son is effectively rejecting his family and saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Can't we just act as if you are? It's insulting, it's degrading. It's an act that would bring shame to the father because it's exactly the kind of thing that honorable Jewish fathers should never do. In fact, one ancient Jewish writing that was influential and popular in Jesus' day says as much. While you are still alive and have breath in you, do not let anyone take your place. At the time when you end the days of your life, in the hour of your death, distribute your inheritance. And yet, even though the request is outrageous and insulting, and even though it brings shame upon the father, 
he does what the son asks. He gives him what he wants. And the younger son takes the money and he goes off and wastes it in what Jesus describes as reckless living. It's hard to feel much sympathy for this man with how disrespectful and wasteful he's been. It's easy to dismiss him as lazy and entitled. But before we reject him or dismiss him, perhaps we should try to understand him a little more. What is it that motivates this young man? Why does he demand his inheritance and go off to some far country? Well, maybe he's bored. Or maybe he thinks that as the second-born son, he'll never measure up to his older brother. He'll never be as important, so he might as well just go out and enjoy himself. Or maybe he feels restricted at his father's house. Maybe what he really wants isn't just the pleasure and the enjoyment that money can bring, but the freedom it offers. And if that's true, then maybe he's a bit more like us than we'd like to admit. After all, isn't that how the Bible describes the human condition? That we, each and every one of us in our own way, that we chafe under the authority of God? That we don't like restrictions? That we would much rather be our own authorities? And maybe that's what the younger son was feeling. But as is the case with us, he soon learned that his newfound freedom was really anything but. It turns out leaving his father's house and being his own man wasn't as freeing as he thought it would be. As Helmut Tielica puts it, no, he is not free. This is the great new thing that suddenly dawns upon him, him who, after all, set out to be free, free above all from his father. He is bound to his homesickness, so he must amuse himself. He is bound to urges, so he must satisfy them. He is bound to a grand style of living, and therefore he cannot let it go. St. Augustine called that kind of freedom not true freedom, but false freedom, pseudo-freedom, the, the freedom of a slave. And it doesn't lead to happiness for this son. It leads to misery, to a point when he's gone bankrupt and he's been abandoned by his friends, and he's doing the most degrading possible thing for a Jewish man to do. He is feeding unclean pigs and wishing, just wishing that he could eat their food. But then something happens. Then Jesus says, I love this line, then he came to himself. He realized all of a sudden just how lost he'd become. It dawned upon him that living under his father's authority wasn't miserable and restricting, quite the opposite. So he decides to return and beg his father to be taken back, not not as a son, not as he was, but merely as a household slave. Because he thinks to himself, because that's, that's all a runaway like him deserves, after all. And, and that brings us to the second thing I'd like to discuss in this story, the, the father and his costly love. Now, what's striking about the father in this story isn't just that he's generous to his sons or he loves them. It's the unimaginable and the very costly extent to which he goes to love them. 
And make no mistake about it, this, this father's love costs him something. Just think about how he responds to his younger son's rude and insensitive request for an inheritance. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't try to defend his honor. He doesn't even reprimand his son for saying something foolish. Instead, he willingly accepts the, the status of death that his son is implying, at least figuratively, by, by giving him what he asks for. And when the son returns, how does he respond? Now keep in mind that this father has every right to be angry and resentful, disappointed. In fact, you could say he, it's almost as if he has a moral duty to reject the son who has rejected him and wasted his inheritance. In fact, the, there's one ancient Jewish writing known as the Apocalypse of Sedrach. It explains precisely how a father is expected to respond to such a wayward son. Tell me what father, having given his son his portion, when he takes his substance and leaves and goes away and becomes a foreigner and serves a foreigner, when the father sees that the son has deserted him, does not darken his heart and does not go and take his substance and banish the son from his glory because he deserted his father. That's how you would expect a father to deal with such a son. But this father is nothing like that. Not only does he willingly pay the cost of his son's rejection, when the son returns, he once again disregards his own honor by running out to meet him. And then he immediately proceeds to, to lavish him with these expensive gifts, a, a robe and a ring and a fatted calf that had been raised and kept for only the most special of occasions. Jesus even says that when the young man is still a long way off, the father sees him and feels compassion. And the word that Jesus uses for compassion there, it's a, it's a very powerful word in Greek more powerful than the normal English translation. I think that Sarah Rudin does a good job at capturing it in her translation of this verse. While he was still at a distance, his father saw him and felt a wrenching pity. He ran to him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him warmly. And notice how the father responds when the son begins his confession. Now, the son has had time to, to think about it beforehand. He knows what he wants to say. And he seems to think that if he just shows enough contrition, enough regret, if he, if he could just demonstrate to his father how sorry he is, then maybe he'll be forgiven. But that's not how things go. He doesn't even get to finish his speech. In verses 18 and 19, when he first decides to go home, the, the son practices what he's going to say. He kind of crafts what he's going to say. And then when he gets there, he, he tries to say it as soon as his father runs up to him, but he doesn't even get to finish the speech. He never even asks for forgiveness. Instead, the, the father interrupts him in the middle of what he's saying, and he starts telling the servants to get him the robe and the ring and fire up the barbecue and get ready to party. And that's, that's important. If we're going to understand this father and the God that this father represents, 
that we need to pay attention to the way that confession and forgiveness work here. The father does not forgive the son because of the sincerity of his confession. He doesn't even let him finish it. And that's because, as Robert Farrah Capon says, it's because as far as Jesus is concerned, all real confession is subsequent to forgiveness. Confession is not a transaction, not a negotiation in order to secure forgiveness. It is the after the last gasp of a corpse that finally can afford to admit it's dead and accept resurrection. Forgiveness surrounds us, beats upon us all our lives. We confess only to wake ourselves up to what we already have. The love and forgiveness of this father is in no way conditioned upon his son's efforts to earn it, even his son's contrition or sorrow. What this father shows in everything that he does is that he is willing to pay any cost for his son and that he is ready to rejoice the instant his son comes home. And it takes some time for the younger son to realize that. At first, he treats the father as if someone who, who needs to be persuaded of his sorrow. And unfortunately, the younger son is not the only one who struggles to come to terms with the kindness and love of his father. You know, you almost wish that Jesus would have just ended the story at verse 24, where he says, and they began to celebrate. The end. Wouldn't that have been a great ending to the story? But Jesus doesn't stop there. The story keeps going, and now it focuses on the elder son. It's clear who the older brother in this story is supposed to be. It's the Pharisees and the scribes who, as we're told in the beginning of Luke 15, who are grumbling and complaining about Jesus' practice of welcoming and eating with sinners. Now, Jesus is clearly embodying the attitude of the father in, in his own attitude toward lost younger sons. And these, these serious and devoted and pious Jews, these Pharisees and scribes, they're appalled by it. And so is this older son in the story. He knows his brother has come home and he hears how his father has welcomed him with open arms, but this brother shows no interest whatsoever in sharing his father's excitement or joy. He doesn't even want to acknowledge the younger son as his brother. He won't even call him that. When the father comes out and asks him to come and join the party and celebrate his brother's return, how does he respond? Look, for all these years, I have been slaving away for you and I never once ignored any order from you, but you never gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But now that this son of yours has come back after he wolfed down in the company of whores, the property that was your livelihood, you have sacrificed the grain fed calf for him. But when the story began, it was the younger son who disrespected and shamed his father. But ironically, at the end, it's the older, the, the dutiful son, who's always done what he's told, who's now insulting his father and refusing to obey him and treating him as if he's nothing more than a means to an end. 
Now, the good news of this story that Jesus tells is that God, like that father, is a God who responds to us not because of what we do, not in a way that we're owed, not how we deserve, but because of his overwhelming and costly love. But just like the Pharisees, this older son does not think that's good news at all. He doesn't want to live in a world determined by grace. He's worked hard in his life to make something of himself, to do the right thing. And because of that, he, he expects to be treated better than some wayward, lazy brother. And it's significant that Jesus chooses to end his story by focusing on this brother. That's how he ends. And Jesus doesn't include any real resolution to the conflict. It tells us something about Jesus' purpose in telling this story in the first place. That his primary purpose, his primary purpose isn't to comfort younger wayward brothers, but to confront older brothers like the Pharisees and scribes and all other people who, who take comfort in their morality and religiosity and think it somehow makes them better, more worthy of God's favor than the people around them. As Timothy Keller says in his book on this parable, the targets of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with immoral outsiders as with moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. Most people who read this story can identify with at least one of these brothers, and some of us can identify with both. Sometimes we, like the younger son, act as if God's authority is some burdensome restriction and that we'd be better off by just not paying too much attention to what God wants and doing our own thing instead and finding endless ways to distract ourselves. But at other times, we may be more like that older brother. Not that we would admit it, even to ourselves. Nobody likes to think of themselves as self-righteous. But that attitude is often more present in our hearts than we'd like to admit. We might say that we are saved by grace, but in reality, we think that what defines us aren't God's unearned gifts, but our own behavior and achievements and and so we judge ourselves and we judge the people around us accordingly. And that's why Jesus told this story. It's why he ends it the way he does with no real resolution. Because he's not just trying to convey information or teach us some principle. He's telling us a story that will confront us and disturb us, unsettle us, get under our skin. The Catholic author Henry Nouwen puts it this way. Unlike a fairy tale, this parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices, to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. As you read and study this story, you should ask yourself two questions. First, where do I see myself in this story? And second, how will I respond to this choice? to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love.